Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes, the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. This is the show where we take some of our favorite documentaries and TV shows from our channel and turn them into podcasts so you can have them wherever you are. Last week we explored Stalin's role in World War II, and this week we're jumping into the ancient history of Carthage, the once dominant power of the Mediterranean. In part one we'll explore the rise of Carthage and introduce you to one of the greatest military strategists in history, Hannibal. The voice of this two-parter is Dr. Richard Miles of Cambridge University who was on location examining the remains and evidence of Rome's equal. It was a fine spring morning when Armageddon began. The city of Carthage in what is now Tunisia had been under fire for three years when the Roman army broke through the gates of the city. From that moment on, innocent people had just weeks to live. Death had come to Carthage and no one would be spared. The orders were precise. Leave not one building standing, not one person alive. What followed was a holocaust. The Roman troops would tear down Carthage's Senate House, burn its library, and defile its sacred shrines. A year's vicious toil would reduce the city to dust. In annihilating Carthage, 150 years before Christ, the Romans made a whole civilization disappear. Rome wanted Carthage completely and permanently erased. Rome's year of brutal genocide is now almost forgotten. Today, Carthage is a place of gentle ruins for sightseeing and contemplation. But in 146 BC, this place witnessed the carnage of an entire people of a civilization who'd lived here for nearly eight centuries. The countdown to destruction had begun three years earlier, when 85,000 troops had sailed from Rome to Carthage on the coast of North Africa. They'd strangled the city with a siege, making its people almost too weak to fight. The Romans had really tightened the noose on Carthage. They'd blocked off the harbors, thereby starving the people of precious food supplies. And even the miller who lived in this house, they found his grindstone, would have had very little to do in the last few months of the city's existence. But I'll tell you who was busy, and that was the undertakers, who had gone from door to door collecting the dead. 
Starvation and disease would have finished off the very old, the very young, and the infirm. And in fact, archaeologists in the 19th century found mass graves where the victims of the Roman siege had been unceremoniously dumped. The Roman army torched the city, district by district, turning it into a blazing inferno. When the Romans set fire to these buildings in order to smoke out their inhabitants, the heat was so intense that it turned these walls red. This must have been absolute hell on earth. It took 17 days for the flames to die. The Roman soldiers then spent a year tearing the charred structures down to their very foundations. Underneath this platform are palaces, streets, temples and shops. People's houses and their most treasured possessions. The lives of thousands of murdered Carthaginians. Now, nothing more than dust. Carthage, famous name, but what do we actually know about it? Virtually nothing, which is exactly what the Romans wanted. When they tore down Carthage's superb library, they made it impossible ever again to hear the Carthaginians in their own words. We're left with a history written by the winners, which has warped our entire view of the ancient world. We learn that Western civilization was built by Egypt, Greece and Rome. But what I want to show is that leaving out Carthage massively distorts our own past. Carthage is sometimes pitied as history's noble victim or despised as cruel, perverted and weak. But that's not how I see it. I believe that Carthage was the tutor at whose feet Rome learnt the art of empire. So powerful that it stood in the way of Rome's greatness. Let me tell you a story of how the birth of one superpower demanded the death of another. I've been coming to Tunisia for over 10 years now, but I still find the Holocaust of Carthage utterly sobering. The Romans were lethally efficient, so there's almost nothing left of ancient Carthage now. But if you look hard, you can still see its ghosts. In the sprawling suburbs of modern-day Tunis, which show the sheer size of the old city foundations that lie directly below and cover 20 square miles. In today's white houses, just like the six-story buildings of the ancient city, apart from their domes. In the faces of living people, many Tunisians today may carry the genes of the Carthaginians, mixed descendants of Middle Easterners and the Berbers of North Africa. Carthage had been built by the Phoenicians, master mariners from the Lebanon, merchants who founded the great maritime trade routes, the superhighways of the ancient Mediterranean Sea. And for an encore, they gave the classical world its first alphabet. But even they would soon be eclipsed by their African-born descendants, the Carthaginians. By 500 BC, Carthage was the richest metropolis the Mediterranean world had ever seen. Into its markets flowed precious metals, jewels, fine cloth and spices. The crews of visiting merchant ships would have gawked with amazement at the shimmering white walls of the mighty harbours. The tiers of houses, palaces and temples that led up to that great citadel gleaming in the morning sun. 
But more than their glorious metropolis, the Carthaginians' most lasting achievement was to invent the Western Mediterranean. Before they came on the scene, few nations knew how to navigate the seas, and most Mediterranean people lived in isolated communities. In their swift boats, the Carthaginians joined these disparate regions into an empire that ran from Spain and Corsica to Sicily and North Africa. The Mediterranean to them wasn't some void between countries, but the outline of an imagined continent. Their world was a series of coordinates on a map of the sea. Their vast commercial fleet of 700 ships became a seaborne conveyor belt. And as they sauntered around the Mediterranean basin, they settled towns on their trade route from Cagliari to Cadiz. Cities that cradled harbors, like Palermo with its superb working port. Carthage's empire combined land and sea in a single ecosystem. All over the lands they colonized, it was Carthaginian green fingers that turned a wilderness into fertile farmland. An army of potters spun amphorae out of clay to transport these riches round the sea. These containers were filled to the brim with olives and olive oil, grapes, wine and grain, the staples of Mediterranean life even today. Carthage helped to create a trans-Mediterranean culture. I'm always struck as I visit the lands of the Mediterranean basin by the similarities in lifestyle from here in Tunisia to Sicily and Spain. Forget the idea of the Western Mediterranean as a European sea. In 500 BC, it was an African sea, run by its undisputed owners, the Carthaginians. Carthage was the lord of the Western Mediterranean. It had no rival. And Rome? Well, Rome was just a small city-state in central Italy. You wouldn't have even mentioned them in the same breath. We're all stuck with the Cecil B. DeMille version of Rome, a city of hulking white marble on a gargantuan scale. But in 500 BC, Rome was made of wood and mud. Hicksville on the banks of the River Tiber. A Roman Empire? Dream on. The story of Carthage forces us to see another side of the Romans. Not the upright lawgivers, but the thuggish upstarts. Not the flag bearers of civilization, but the ruthless wannabes. By 300 BC, Rome was punching and kicking its way to becoming a militarized state. Like some monstrous embryo with a destiny to fulfill, straining to be born. Rome had been feeling the heat. The islands off its west coast were all Carthaginian, just that little bit too close for comfort. In Sardinia, Carthage had riches on tap from its mines of silver, gold, copper, tin, and zinc. The Carthaginians were greedy for land like this in southern Sardinia. The earth here is literally crammed full of precious minerals. And what's more, is it's handily perched by the sea ready to disgorge its metals onto the waiting Carthaginian ships. For over 300 years, the vast mineral wealth of Sardinia and Spain helped pay for the Carthaginian navy in its efforts to police the Mediterranean Sea and to keep it open for business. Halcyon days for Carthage, but they'd failed to hear the distant rumblings from Italy over the sea. Rome, that small, insignificant city-state, had, after a long series of bloody wars, subjugated the whole 
of central Italy. Rome was on the up, but still nothing more than a small regional power. Nothing for the Carthaginians to worry about, or so they thought. But Rome had become a contender. Its legions were creeping southwards, devouring land in their path, city by city, state by state. While the Carthaginians reveled in their success, envious eyes were beginning to size up their good fortune. From its humble beginnings, Rome's rise had been relentless. By the third century BC, it had bulldozed its way through Italy with determination, luck, and overwhelming force. It wasn't long before the snarling supremacists of the land cast around for a new challenge, the sea. Carthage's days of having the Mediterranean to itself were over. By 275 BC, Rome had conquered virtually the whole of Italy, and now she started jealously eyeing up those lucrative southern trade routes which Carthage controlled. But before she could mount a serious challenge, she had to conquer the sea. Carthage's juiciest peach was Sicily, almost halfway between Rome and North Africa, prime position for a violent tug of love. A chilly standoff gave way to Cold War. Carthage promised to stay out of Italy if Rome kept out of Sicily. But I get the feeling the Carthaginians didn't have a clue who they were dealing with here. There was a new elite controlling Rome, a nouveau riche gorged on money and short on scruples that was hankering after Sicily's charms. You can see why at this superb archaeological site, a Carthaginian settlement on the small island of Motia, off the west coast of Sicily. The community here was running a lucrative staging post for Carthaginian ships circling the Mediterranean. There were good reasons why Rome wanted Sicily so badly. Rome was governed by fear. Sicily was only a short hop away from mainland Italy. And places like this, this dock at Motia, were fantastic for making sure that Carthaginian ships could be rearmed and restocked for a potential strike on the Italian mainland. Another reason for Rome's aggression was greed. The businessmen turned politicians, who now controlled Rome, had originally made their fortunes through trade in the southern Mediterranean. And one of their best customers had been Carthage. Now the thinking was, was that if they controlled places such as this, they'd be able to flood North Africa with their produce. And so fear and greed, Rome's belligerent twins, took their first swipe at Carthage's empire. 264 years before Christ. History calls it the first Punic War, but to me, it's more than just another ancient conflict. It was unparalleled in its savagery, and it lasted 25 years. But more than this, it marked Rome's blood-soaked birth as an empire. I'm now in the very waters where Roman and Carthaginian ships once fought, in a war that irreversibly changed the balance of power in the Mediterranean. The First Punic War was a real turning point for the Roman Empire. Rome, traditionally a land power, at last found her sea legs. But it was a close-run thing. Just listen to this for a scorecard. They lost 700 ships compared with the Carthaginians' 400. And they lurched from disaster to catastrophe. And one Roman admiral, frustrated because the sacred chickens that were meant to augur luck were off their feed, tossed them overboard saying, well, if they're not hungry, perhaps they'd like a drink instead. 
He went on to preside over the biggest naval disaster that Rome ever suffered, losing the whole of his fleet. But in what must be one of the most bitter ironies in ancient history, it was the Carthaginians who inadvertently turned Rome into a major sea power. The course of the war was about to change. By incredible luck, a Carthaginian warship strayed into Roman waters. Capturing the ship, Rome now had an unbelievable opportunity to learn how to build the best battleship on the sea. Roman boatwrights immediately took it apart, discovered that every timber was marked with a letter. With lightning speed, the Roman navy copied the ship, plank by plank, nail by nail. Thanks to those instructions so helpfully left by the Carthaginians. And in no time at all, Rome had built an identical navy. A staggering 220 ships were built in 45 days. Rome could now take on Carthage on equal terms. If they could beat Carthage at sea, they'd remove the sole obstacle to exploiting the Mediterranean themselves. The balance of power swung violently between Carthage and Rome for another 20 years, until in 241 BC, Carthage suffered a catastrophic defeat. It was forced to hand over all of its lands in Sicily. Rome could now control the gateway to the Western Mediterranean. It could be policeman and tax collector, deciding who could come in and who could go out. Rome had inflicted a crushing defeat on Carthage in its own element, the sea. Rome now had Carthage's Mediterranean empire in its sights. Through one vicious war, Rome had promoted itself to superpower. This is a reconstruction of the column that was put up to celebrate the end of the First Punic War. This inscription here details the famous naval victory over the Carthaginians. You have to understand that 20 years before, Rome didn't really have a navy and now she had defeated Carthage, the queen of the Mediterranean Sea. And the Romans were immensely proud of this victory. They'd watched and they'd learnt, and then they'd taken Carthage on in her own backyard, and they'd won. How those Romans must have enjoyed watching the great superpower squirm. They forced Carthage to pay the equivalent of tens of millions of pounds in war indemnities. To add insult to injury, the Roman navy seized Sardinia the following year and extorted another voluptuous payment from Carthage. Then, with unbridled greed, Rome added new terms to the post-war treaty, arguing that the original ones were too lenient. These harsh terms and humiliations were felt keenly in Carthage, and Rome, by breaking the terms of her own peace treaty, was storing up big trouble for the future. Carthage was a furnace of resentment after its defeat by Rome. They'd kissed away a chunk of their empire to a bunch of upstarts. Now they were being leached with extortionate fines. The young of Carthage hungered for revenge. And out of this fug of hatred and humiliation, vengeance was slowly taking human form. The young general, Amilcar Barker, was sent to southern Spain to try and revive the Carthaginian fortunes, and he hit pay dirt. This earth, which is now exhausted 
after 2,000 years of exploitation, was once bursting at the seams with mineral wealth. Not least of all, silver, the bullion of the ancient world. And with that, Carthage can now pay back its debts to Rome and launch a serious challenge to its power. First, Hamilcar masterminded an extraordinary expansion in Spain until Carthage commanded nearly all of the country. Then, he used this new wealth to redevelop the old Phoenician cities, like Cadiz here in the south, wresting away the hub of Carthaginian power from the old guard in North Africa. If the great and the good of Carthage thought that Hamilcar was gonna to bow to their will, then they were in for a shock. This Carthaginian adventurer had his own agenda. He built his own fine imperial capital and cheekily named it Carthage after the mother city. With its fine harbors, with its royal palace, and with its temple of Eshmoon, this was Carthage in Spain. Hamilcar and his heirs built up a belligerent rogue state that was just itching for a fight with Rome. And for the appeasers back in the old country, Costa del Carthage was dangerously out of control. And here we're in the territory of myth. Overbearing father, dutiful son. The boy swears an oath of eternal hatred towards the enemy in front of the altars of the gods, and he never, ever forgets. You need a backstory like that for the most famous general in history. This is not some schmuck in a flak jacket. This, dear viewer, is Hannibal. Now, Hannibal was Rome's worst nightmare. Here was a Carthaginian who was a brilliant land general. He cut his teeth in the hills of southern Spain, campaigning against the tribes. Now he had a trick up his sleeve, 21 elephants. Now imagine three tons of African elephant flesh bearing down on you, full of Dutch courage from the wine which they'd been given to drink. But things didn't always go to plan. Sometimes these elephants attacked their own troops. And for that, each of the drivers was issued with a metal spike to drive through the skull of the elephant to kill it in its tracks. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes, where we're just learning about Rome's worst nightmare, Hannibal, and his army of war elephants. Now Hannibal just loved doing what his enemies least expected, but this mercurial nature was often more fatal for his own side than it was for the Romans. Only one solitary elephant survived the epic journey, and he had to keep on stopping to recruit more troops because of his own huge losses. Now much is made of Hannibal's pathological hatred of Rome, but I think that there were other, more vainglorious reasons for his behavior. It's almost like he needed to attack his enemies, that he was up for the challenge, rather than it being part of some grand military strategy. Hannibal was a chancer, but he was a successful chancer. Spain, Gaul, Italy, Final destination, Rome. 216, Hannibal and his armies reached the very gates of Rome. Now, this was a momentous occasion. Carthage was now within a stone's throw of capturing their great enemy. But Hannibal never got the fight he had come for, which would surely have obliterated Rome and changed the course of European history. The Roman generals, appealing to the glory complex that had driven Hannibal from Spain, removed their troops and enticed him away from the city with new battles elsewhere. First, they played a cat and mouse game with him through the Italian countryside. And then finally, they attacked the city of Carthage itself, forcing Hannibal to leave Italy to defend his African homeland. Rome had been spared, but Hannibal had taken the great capital to within an inch of its life. You should never underestimate what a traumatic event this was for Rome. And it was a trauma for which Carthage would pay dearly. When Hannibal sailed back to Africa for the first time in 30 years, I think he must have been shocked and dismayed. He found himself rejected by the very city in whose name he had fought. He had spent most of his life in Spain, and his fellow Carthaginians distrusted him. Instead of embracing him as a hero, the city's elders shunned him as a foreigner. They even tried to negotiate a secret peace treaty with Rome behind his back. And in 202 BC at Zama, the inevitable happened. The legendary Hannibal was comprehensively and soundly defeated by the Roman armies. It was all over. Carthage rewarded him for his pains with a brief stint in government, but the exhausted general soon retired. Roman hitmen hunted Hannibal down, but he cheated them of the symbolic triumph of an assassination by drinking poison. Even after his suicide, he lived on as a dark presence in the Roman imagination, as a mythical demonic power that could be drawn down for decades whenever Rome needed an enemy. Hannibal had taunted Rome with the spectre of its own death, and Rome could never forgive or forget. Carthage was made to pay. 
the pathetic remains of its mighty navy were set ablaze in sight of the city. All its overseas territories were confiscated, and it was handed a bill for billions of dollars in today's money that had to be paid to Rome over the next 50 years. Carthage had been resoundingly defeated. What I find amazing is that this was not the moment that Rome chose to wipe Carthage off the face of the earth, that it would wait for more than 40 years to raise Carthage to the ground, when there was no longer a viable excuse. But revenge for the Romans was a dish best served cold. This is where it all happened, the extraordinary Senate House in Rome. This is where Roman hawks and doves debated how to solve a problem. The hawks were led by one of the most controversial figures of the Roman Republic, Cato, an extremist and xenophobe, who calibrated his own life according to the exploits of the Carthaginians. He wrote, I first enlisted in the army at 17, when Hannibal was having his run of luck, setting Italy on fire. Unlike many of his senatorial colleagues who would have sat with him on these benches here, Cato couldn't boast an aristocratic lineage. But ever the self-publicist, he was keen for everyone to know what a modest lifestyle he had, working in the fields with his slaves and eating turnips for tea. Cato claimed that the lack of statues of him anywhere in Rome proved his extreme modesty. Others put it down to his repulsive appearance. Now Cato, this puritanical killjoy, loved to rail against the luxurious living of his senatorial colleagues. He had one senator dismissed for the heinous crime of kissing his wife in public. Now Cato reserved his most venomous hatred for Carthage. This veteran of the Second Punic War was adamant that Rome should have destroyed Carthage when she had the chance. And every one of his speeches ended with the deadly lines the lender Escatago, Carthage must be destroyed. For the time being, Cato was just a malevolent shadow on the fringes of Roman politics. He had a powerful opponent, the aristocrat Scipio Nasica, who led the anti-war faction. Carthage is the whetstone of our greatness, Scipio reminded his colleagues. It was the esteemed rival that kept Rome sharp, and Rome, he argued, would fall into greed and complacency if it were to become a sole superpower. So the dove Scipio welcomed a strong Carthage to save Rome from itself. There should have been peace, but a miraculous renaissance in Carthage had the hawks on the warpath again. Their economy was booming. Ten years after their most wretched defeat, the Carthaginians had turned crisis into triumph. They were able to pay off all their war debts to Rome 40 years early. In 153 BC, the 81-year-old Cato visited Carthage as part of a delegation and was appalled to see how wealthy the city had become again. He even suspected that the Carthaginians were breaking the arms limitation treaties made 50 years earlier. This certainly wasn't the desired effect of all those punitive treaties. Imagine the sheer frustration of the man. Carthage simply wouldn't die. And for Cato, this dangerous rival now had to be snuffed out once and for all. Cold-shouldered in the Senate, Cato made a play for the people with a charm offensive to turn your stomach. He pressed the flesh, staged public games, stoked Rome's greed for Carthage's wealth, and manipulated the fear that had been a Roman habit ever since Hannibal had shaken the mighty Republic by its neck. 
Akato finished off every speech with his malevolent jingle. The lender Escatago, Carthage must be destroyed. Cato gave the performance of his life here on the roster of the Senate. As he unfurled his toga, out dropped ripe, juicy figs. Where do you think I got these from, he said. They're from a vibrant and over-prosperous Carthage only three days' sail away. The debate was won. Cato had managed to trump the enemy against whom he had been agitating for the whole of his life. From that moment on, Carthage was living on borrowed time. Cato was now just looking for the excuse he needed to justify destroying it. But Carthage sensed the change in the wind over in Rome. It was not over yet. Now on this small island in Carthage, there's been a wonderful discovery by the British archaeologist Henry Hurst. This was a secret naval facility for 180 Carthaginian warships. Now this ramp that you can see here, and many others would have been all the way round the island, led all the way down to the water's edge. And ships which needed to be rearmed and restocked would have been dragged up into the centre of the island. So when was this marvel of maritime engineering actually built? Well, the pottery that the archaeologists found on this site and underneath the structure itself dated it to the end of the Second Punic Wars, when Carthage had solemnly promised to only maintain a fleet of just ten warships. So bitter old Cato's hunch had been right. Carthage, defiant and defeat, was rearming. Two years after Cato's visit, in 151 BC, a fiery young leader swept into office in Carthage. His name was Hasdrubal. Before long, Hasdrubal was fighting to defend Carthage from a neighboring kingdom's incursions. But in doing this, he rashly broke the terms of the peace treaty with Rome. The Romans now had the excuse they needed to wage war on Carthage. Rome sent a massive army of 85,000 men to within striking distance and laid down an ultimatum that Carthage completely disarm. Hasdrubal complied. Then the Romans made an outrageous new demand that the Carthaginians abandon their capital and stay out of the Mediterranean for all time. Faced with extinction, Carthage had no choice but to stand and fight. Cato's final gesture before he died was to make sure that the man charged with the destruction of Carthage was another member of the Scipio dynasty. Scipio knew exactly what to do. He throttled Carthage with a siege. In revenge, Hasdrubal ordered that the eyes, tongues, and genitals of the Roman prisoners be torn out with iron hooks on the city walls. The Carthaginians then flayed them alive and threw their raw, still-breathing bodies down to their comrades massed below. The time had come for the Romans to act. One fine spring day, Scipio's troops at last breached the gates of Carthage's harbour. And Scipio now ordered the final assault on the besieged city and its starving inhabitants. But first he rallied his troops with the following chilling words. All of you spread fear, flight and terror in this city of Carthage. And in the following days, his troops would follow his command to the letter. After capturing the lower city, Scipio now turned his attention to the ultimate prize, the capital of Carthage, the Bursa Hill, last refuge of the city's inhabitants. Three streets led up the hill. The houses that flanked them were closely packed together and up to six storeys tall. As the Roman troops advanced, the Carthaginians mounted a desperate defence, hurling missiles down from the roof. But Scipio, an experienced military man, knew how to counter such tactics. 
He ordered that the houses be set ablaze, that the passageways below be kept free of blazing material. In this way, the killing squads could carry on their work. As more and more houses were set on fire, old men, women and children who had been hidden in these buildings came down with the blazing rubble. Their charred and damaged bodies were brutally dragged out of the way by the mattocks and hooks of the Roman cleansing squads. Both the living and the dead were hurled into huge pits, and others were crushed by the charging horses of the Roman cavalry until their faces were no longer visibly human. The city was consumed by this hellish turmoil for six long days and nights. Scipio, like any good killing squad commander, regularly rotated his troops, not only to conserve their physical strength, but also their sanity. On the seventh day, Scipio took himself off to a patch of high ground, and looking down, calculated that the brutal conflict would not be won for many days yet. He turned out to be wrong for a group of Carthaginian elders, defying their leader, Hasdrubal, had taken matters into their own hands. They begged Scipio to spare their lives. He granted their request. That very day, 50,000 men, women and children passed through a narrow gate in the wall into a life of grim slavery. After watching his people deserting their beleaguered city in droves, Hasdrubal's nerve finally broke. He went to Scipio and groveled for mercy. This cowardice would not go unnoticed or unpunished. His wife had taken refuge from the flames on the roof of the great temple of Eshmoon, along with her children. And as the flames flickered around her, she poured scorn on the treacherous Hasdrubal. Looking down on her cowering husband, she delivered a savage rebuke. Wretch, traitor, almost effeminate of men. This fire will entomb me and my children. But what of you, O great commander of Carthage? What punishments will be inflicted upon you by the man at whose feet you are sitting? What Roman triumph will you grace? With these words, she killed her children and threw them into the fire, and then plunged in after them. Carthage was dead. In the shocking aftermath of this murderous episode, the charred ruins of Carthage were systematically dismantled. Thousands of Roman troops spent a whole year carrying out Cato's words to the letter. In the modern world, Hiroshima and Nagasaki could be wiped out in a morning at the touch of a button. But in the ancient world, destroying a city meant getting your hands seriously dirty. So why did Rome do it? In the end, I think it was cold-blooded pragmatism that sealed Carthage's fate. Rome understood that it could only become a global superpower by eradicating its most talented opponents. Astonishingly, in the same year, Rome did exactly the same thing to the great Greek city of Corinth. They did it once, they did it twice. There was no need to do it a third time. This was an object lesson in Rome's absolute power. The cold-blooded obliteration of two of the greatest cities in the Mediterranean world sent out a clear message. Imperial Rome had arrived. Things would certainly never be the same for the Mediterranean world again. Everything would now be run according to a grand imperial plan and the Mediterranean would become Rome's supermarket. When they first fought, Carthage had been queen of the Mediterranean. Just over a hundred years later, Rome was referring to the Mediterranean as Mare Nostrum, our sea. This is what it was all about. This Roman shipwreck, which is now in the museum in Cadiz, gives us a wonderful snapshot of the riches now available to Rome after the defeat of Carthage. 
This ship groaned under the weight of the natural produce of the Mediterranean basin. We have ingots from the lead mines of Spain. And these amphora would have been filled to the brim with wine, olives, oil and wheat. These were the real spoils of the Punic Wars. The Roman soldiers who had annihilated Carthage returned home for their victory procession through the heart of Rome. In the same spot where Italians parade today, they had a shock in store. It wasn't only the Carthaginians who found themselves on the losing side of the Punic Wars. What did the peasant farmers who made up the backbone of the victorious Roman armies gain from 20 years of grinding military conflict? The glittering triumph in which they had marched through the streets of Rome, garlands of flowers and cheering crowds had made them believe that a better future was theirs. However, they were soon to realize that they'd been sold down the river. The senators of Rome had no intention of sharing out the spoils of the Punic Wars. They'd even stolen the soldiers' land whilst they were away fighting. As the aristocracy grew fat on the profits, a new underclass was born, dependent on handouts and free bread. The veterans' own land was used to grow the wheat to feed them, slabs of carbohydrate to keep them tame. Later, leisure complexes were built, like the Colosseum, to keep the masses entertained. In the end, their reward for a life-fighting Carthage was a cut-price seat to a human cockfight. Bread and circuses for the masses was not all that it's been cracked up to be. For 150 years, the history of these two rival empires, Rome and Carthage, was conjoined, for richer and for poorer, in Cold War and in hot. For Rome, war with Carthage had been a blood-soaked tutelage. Rome was pushed to the limits by Carthage, as friction became war and war Armageddon. Without Carthage, Rome would never have sharpened itself into a superpower. But it had not finished with Carthage yet. In defeat, Carthage would be more useful to Rome than ever. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for part one of this story. Tune in next week for part two. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.